my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Joe, Joe Calasari, uh, welcome to the show. I'm excited to sit down with you. Um, we've gone back and forth on Twitter a bunch. We've been in several uh, Twitter spaces. I've always enjoyed uh, our conversations back and forth. I'm excited to uh, sit down and do a long form with you. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, likewise, Mark. Thank you. This is going to be great. Yeah, I know uh, we can explore maybe some of our differences in opinion. We'll see what those are like uh, as we were kind of talking about a minute ago. I've been off of Twitter for about five months. My account got hacked. I think I'm a week away from getting it back. We'll see. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure where if, if we agree or disagree. We'll talk about that. Um, but real quick, you know, just to kind of set this up, um, you kind of come up about it from a little bit of a different angle. We all do uh, different angles, which is what makes it uh, good, right? We're all individuals. But you sort of have like this, This you're an attorney. <laughs> you're, you're a litigator. Uh, yeah. Uh, in my experience, I've worked with lots of attorneys. I've always hired lots of attorneys, and uh, they can think of every single problem that should ever could ever go wrong for me. <laughs> but that's why I hire them, right? I'm the eternal optimist. I need my attorney to like protect me from all the downsides. So I'm guessing just attorneys. Well, from my experience, attorneys just think things a little bit differently. Um, again, I'm the optimist, and you're probably more of the pessimist. But you're a commercial litigator, and you work in the Bitcoin crypto space. Give us a little bit of a background on that, just to set this up. Yeah, and you framed it very well. I do think a lot of attorneys are kind of natural, sort of, let's see the worst case scenario. I like to think of myself as like, let's see every scenario, right? I like to play out every type of possible thing from the insanely bullish optimistic to the most unlikely sort of tail event uh, pessimist. So I, 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 he, I hear it all and I try to think through it all. Um, just to give you my background, I am the, the co-chair of the FinTech Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Practice Group at Amundsen Davis, a Chicago-based firm. Uh, well over half of my practice currently 
currently is something related to Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, miners. I represent a ton of different folks, both on the commercial litigation front in the Bitcoin space, but also in the regulatory front, you know, advising startups and entities as they bring tokens to market, advising Bitcoin companies and how they navigate the space, which is always changing, as you know, from a regulatory standpoint. And then I do have a, a good uh, amount of my practice, which is just general commercial litigation, breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, um, litigation that really is uh, more sort of uh, neutral from the Bitcoin crypto space. So I think I bring an interesting perspective on this. And, and I have been just an armchair retail investor since you know I was in grade school, basically trading on a custodial account with my father. Uh, so I've always been a student of the markets and love bringing the macro into the discussion. And I think in many ways, it makes me a better lawyer because I think I understand some of the business aspects and some of the, what's going on in capital markets better than a lot of my, uh, my other uh, uh, contemporaries. Mm, great. Well, that's a great way to frame it up. Um, I want to get into some of the legal stuff. Let's start on some of the financial macro stuff in the beginning. And let's sort of uh, let's go back and just look at 2023 for a minute. And then we'll talk about uh, where, where we think 2024 is. Um, as I said, you know, you and I, I know we, we did a couple of uh, Twitter spaces and things like that. Um, I, you know, I know uh, you're good friends with our mutual friend or you're working with Nick Batia. I've done a bunch of stuff with Nick Batia over the Bitcoin layer as well. And um, I remember doing some shows with him sort of back like November a year ago of 2022 and talking about did the Fed is the Fed going to be able to pull off this uh, this soft landing? And so that was sort of my narrative. I just did this live presentation and I showed twelve videos over the last twelve months where I kept saying, "Hey, the soft landing. Hey, they'll be able to pull it off." Uh, you know, January of twenty twenty three, uh, they changed the CPI calculation. I thought that would give them the cover they need. Um, then you know, the BTFP was basically silent easing. Um, and so those are kind of some of the things I was looking at um, from some of our earlier conversations before I was kicked off Twitter. It seemed like you were kind of a more of looking at the year bearishly and there's no shortage of bad indicators to look at so mm -hmm. first of all do you were you a little bit surprised in how 2023 ended up yeah a absolutely um i'll just tell you i think you know it's really important to be honest and sort of reflect what you get right and what you get wrong and i think what many folks not not just myself but many others were sort of focused on um, and it was it was a flaw, right? It's like you're, the old adage: you never want to be the general that fights the last war. That's and I it. think what what, <laughs> yeah. what most people were focused on was the fact that in prior hiking cycles for the Federal Reserve, what you tended to see is you saw this very pronounced reaction function where they would hike rates, and then corporate net interest costs would instantly almost react to that. And that would cut into the bottom line of companies, which would trigger a uh, basically a recessionary dynamic where unemployment rises. And what we've actually seen is corporate America, in large respects, at least for now, has dodged really the damage uh, that would be inflicted by uh, by higher rates. Why is that? Two reasons in my view. First off, I think a lot of companies were really hogs at the trough, feeding on low interest rates, and they borrowed at those very low interest rates, moved out those maturity dates for, you know, in some cases, four, five, six years. And they did this in 2020 and 2021. So when the Fed began to hike, I think, yes, you saw some sort of chaos in the bond market for the on-the-run treasuries. But what you didn't see is you didn't see companies sort of start to panic because they're saying, look, from a balance sheet perspective, I'm locked in at very low rates. I'm protected in some cases until 2027, 2028. Uh, why would I panic? Why would I trigger that? That coupled with the fact that you still had significant fiscal support, um, still to this day, I mean, we're running basically wartime deficits at this point, and you had consumers who built up a, a really big honeypot of additional 
uh, savings, accumulated savings, which they've drawn down on to try to combat higher prices. So all those dynamics together, I think, have lengthened out this cycle far beyond what most people had, had anticipated. Yeah. You know, the one thing that uh, I think it was Mark Twain, he said, it's not the things that you know for certain that get you in, or you don't know that get you in trouble. It's the things you know for certain. And I remember like as soon as the Fed raises rates, the risk free rate goes up, then stocks have to mm -hmm. reprice lower. They have to. They have to. They have to. Well, <laughs> they don't have to because they didn't. And then it was like, well, when mortgages go from three percent to eight percent, home prices have to come down. They have to. They have to. They have to. Uh, no, they don't because <laughs> they didn't. Now, a lot of that, to your point, is because, you know, a lot of that, we have this uh, lag, right? So when they raise rates, we have this lag, maybe because they've, one, to your point, they locked it in low, but two, because they also raised it really fast, maybe that changes the, the lag a little bit as well. Um, but uh, something that I'm thinking of is two, two things, and so I'm just curious to get your take on these things. So one, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned... Uh, you mentioned sort of like uh, the companies didn't react. And part of that, to your point, is because they had this long locked in debt, right? right. Um, something that I've been thinking about as well, I just keep going back to um, Ludwig von Mises' crack up boom. And then suddenly the people realize that inflation is both permanent and intentional. And once that happens, people want to get rid of the currency and they just want to buy assets, right? That's basically paraphrasing what he says. Um, and so it almost seems like globally we're seeing sort of this switch to assets. Uh, nation states, China bought half the lithium mines in the world, right? OPEC would rather keep oil in the ground, so to speak. Um, central banks bought, you know, a thousand tons of gold again, right? Um, and, and maybe some of it is just like, the world is starting to wake up to and maybe this is optimistic, uh, optimistic to like, hey, these are the games the Fed plays and we're not going to we don't want to go back into this fiat game. We'll just stick with assets. Do you think maybe the world is starting to see that a little bit? I think that it's been in a trend that has basically persisted for the last 30 years. I think that the only real uh, disruption of that comes in moments where you have a huge uh, sort of uh, spike in unemployment. Uh, because of passive indexation primarily, right? Um, particularly with the American stock market. Uh, the American stock market is driven uh, you know, overwhelmingly by the passive indexer, the person who reflexively bids stocks with every single paycheck into vehicles. They don't even think about it. They're just buying. I mean, they're, they're not analyzing it in terms of PE multiples or so forth. They're just taking whatever their savings and putting it into accounts. And I think what you've also seen is that that has been sort of contributing to this um, sort of uh, disparity between the haves and the have-nots, where those who have disposable income are buying assets. They're using it to buy assets, and they trust assets probably more than the actual currency, uh, mostly because they, they can always get liquidity in the form of credit creation whenever it's needed, right? And you kind of know this. There's this statistic um, that people talk about how you know most Americans would have to go into debt uh, if they had to make up for you know an unexpected $500 you know uh, yeah. expenditure. The reason I think that is is because a lot of Americans just put their excess savings into some sort of um, you know vehicle, some sort of asset, Either, even the conservative things, bonds or stocks or real estate, whatever it is, if they need short-term liquidity because credit is so ample, they'll just tap it that way. So to your point, like, yes, there is a mad rush to ditch your dollars and put them in some type of asset that can have a better store of value. And, and the store of value of our time at this point, overwhelmingly, is the U.S. stock market, mostly the S&P 500. That's, that is the, the premier choice. So I think, like, I don't think this is a new development. I think to your point, it is a trend, and it is trend, trending yeah. towards more and more of the, you know, let's, let's save and store in some vehicle other than the currency. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. 
Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Uh, something else that was sort of driving my narrative throughout the year and, and actually still is, and I've done some videos about this. I went on Swan Signal, broke it down, and I've done videos. But basically, how the Fed and, and all the central banks really um, have changed how they interact in the market really since 2008. So I'd love to get your idea on this or your opinion on this. But, you know, in 2008, was sort of the first time we saw QE, at least from the Fed, right? Maybe it's, it's been applied in different forms at other, or other places. But really, the Fed sort of jumped in and intervened in the market, right? You know? In 2006, we saw a 26% plunge in home starts, but yet it wasn't until 2008 that they started to even think about doing it in the real estate market. We had Bear Stearns go down bankrupt, which sort of triggered that collapse. It took seven months to get a bailout, seven mm-hmm. months. Right In 2023, we saw six days they got a bailout. A couple other parallels I'll just throw out real quick would be... Um, you know, obviously the TARP package, 700 billion, you know, about a, about 1 trillion overall, you know, 2020, we had 10 trillion. We saw the stock market in 20, 2008 drop 60%, this time 30%, uh, six year recovery, three month recovery, you know, kind of thing like that. And now even more what we've seen is, um, you know, in 2020, we saw, I think 13 special funding facilities get set up, three, four letter agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, they were buying equities in the market. I mean, they're just throwing everything at the kitchen sink. Um, and now, you know, 
again, back to the PTFB, this funding facility for banking, six days they got that set up. Uh, they have swap lines set up, not just with, with friendly nations, but even non-friendly nations, non-allies. Uh, we have these swap lines set up, which is sort of like giving them these credit cards. And so it just looks like the way the Fed interacts in the markets is a lot more... Um, it's not reactionary like it was in 2008. They're like preemptively, <laughs> here's your credit line. If you get into trouble, go ahead and use it. You don't need to like call me and get an act of Congress to go through. And um, I think a lot of that is changing it. So uh, like today or the last several months, a lot of people are saying, oh, but Mark, don't you know the commercial real estate mortgage, 2.9 trillion, it's going to crash, going to take down the, you know, the, the mid-sized banks with it. Sure, the Fed could just take it all on their books. Like, you know what I mean? And so it's like... Uh, do you think, I guess one, do you think that, that that's correct? Do you think the Fed and the central banks are interacting different than they were today, preemptively as opposed to reactionary? And do you think that changes sort of the direction moving forward from here? Yeah, I, I think they definitely are uh, increasingly becoming more rapid, which I think is your point. Um, now, to me, okay, I think the Fed primary tool, and this isn't just my opinion, this is if you go interview some of the former Fed chairs, Bernanke and others, They'll tell you that the primary tool of the Fed is to talk, right? They sure. want to smooth expectations. They want people to be comfortable, and that's, that's what we that's know, what we saw in November, right? They they brought the they eased the markets without doing anything, just the jawbone. Exactly, and you can go back and look at some of these policies, whether it be the BTFP that you alluded to in March, or even look at um, which I think is a better scenario when the Fed announced almost to the day when the Fed announced that they were going to buy. Um, uh, corporate uh, bonds, like high-yield bond ETFs, you know, the HYG and others, um, that's the day the market bottomed in March of 2020. And w what I read from that inconsistently is that, like, you, the Fed's, Fed's communication function, their ability to set expectations, is basically a form of psychological manipulation for market participants. If you can convince the market participants, we've got your back. You know, the Fed's at our back and they're going to make sure that you don't have a cascade of bank failures or that we don't have a cascade of high yield debt that defaults, then the market will move on that expectation and will provide liquidity in itself. You got to remember when everybody's scared and nervous, the one thing they want is they want someone to, you know, pat them on the shoulder and say, it's going to be all right. Yeah. And that's the primary, I view that as the primary role of the Fed. The Fed, right or wrong, okay, you can dispute whether it's a good system or not. I, I don't really care. My point is that when they come forward with these programs, they always have to announce some other new program or new venture. And it's all designed, I think, primarily just to calm things down. Um, you know, you had you had significant movements in capital markets before the Fed actually was buying junk debt. Okay, that tells me really that it's all about pacifying a very nervous market. And if they can pacify it, mission accomplished. Yeah, I agree 100%. I say this all the time. I love that you said that as well. But you know, I think a lot of a lot of the we'll call them uh, intellectuals in the macro space, they're factually correct, but intellectually dishonest. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is they'll say, but the Fed didn't do anything. And I say, but they said they were going to do something. Yeah. And, to, and just by saying it, so technically you're correct. They didn't do anything, but they said they were going to do something. And that did something, right? And so uh, I agree with you. The, uh, the, the thing is this, and this is a, a quote I always like to, like to remind myself of. In many ways, when you have those discussions with those sort of macro folks you're talking about, it's not about reality. It's about the perception of reality. 
and the perception influences people's actions. So if people perceive that they've got their backs, that can reinflate markets, it can reinflate you know, the, the bubble, um, and that's really what's required. Now, what I will say is there are times where, despite the message they're broadcasting, they, you know, they can go out there and they can say, uh, as they did in 2008, that the banking system is strong. It doesn't make it so, right? But you gotta remember, Mark, as you know, when Bear Stearns went down in the spring of 2008, the market, originally rallied off that okay it bottomed and then it rallied because people said okay they're saying it's fine they saying they said you know subprime is contained remember these things they would go out there and try to uh, you know manipulate the marketplace it wasn't it clearly wasn't and you finally had the shoe drop which sent people into a panic but my point is that like just because they're saying it doesn't mean it's true however the market can react based on what they're saying so it's a very complex dynamic there right yeah, 100%. I agree with all that. But going back to the Bear Stearns, as I already laid out, it took them seven months to get a bailout today. This Now it's six days. And so um, to your point, they tried to jawbone the market, but then the market realized, hey, the, we still don't have liquidity. The whole system's still seizing up. Uh, we still have bigger problems. Um, whereas this time it was like, here's the liquidity. Everyone's whole. No one's losing money. Everyone's good, right? And so I think that it, it was the jawboning, but they also did something. And I'm just curious your take on this because... Um, you know, Harry Dent Jr., I've, I've read five of his books. His research is amazing. I've had him on my show. He spoke at my conferences. Um, <laughs> and not to call him out, but I pulled up a, a bunch of YouTube videos. And for 12 years, the market's going to crash 90%. Seven years, going to crash 90%. <laughs> Six years, in June of this year, it's going to crash by 90% this year. Like, and it's just like, he'll be right eventually, right? Um, but I think a lot of it is failing, my opinion, again, I've read his books because I think his, his research is correct. I think the assumptions are wrong and failing to think about how many more magic tricks the Fed can just pull out of their, out of their sleeve. Like, oh, the bank's going to collapse. Well, let's just throw BTFP out there. And eventually we know this collapses, right? Um, but I think about these constraints that we have, right? And, and you're well aware that we could dig into. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned the fiscal spending. Like... <laughs> The government has to keep spending. Uh, that's there, right? They have to continue to have buyers for the debt. It's, there's not enough appetite internationally for the debt they're producing. The Fed's going to have to buy. Uh, the rates are going to have to come down. The interest is going to overtake you know, the, the expenses or the income, et cetera. So these sort of constraints that we have, and it just seems like the Fed's going to have to just keep pulling magic tricks out of their hat. And again, like I said, just hypothetically, you know, this commercial real estate mortgage market, $2.9 could crash the whole market. Or the Fed could just put it on their books. Like, what would stop them from doing that? Or well, do you think that's the? Or do you think that's the likely scenario? I, I think again, these are all ones of degree, right? Like, so can you have some defaults and problems in commercial real estate? Yes. And I think what the Fed would look at is they look at is the default rate is it something that is uh, undermining uh, or causing a systemic risk? Okay, and that's always a fine line. You don't know, you know, where they're going to draw that line. I mean, that's the, the quote unquote Fed put, right, which I think still exists. It's just a question of where the strike is. Um, and, and what I would look at it like is like, okay, to, to, to the first point of your question, how much debt it becomes an untenable amount of debt? And nobody knows the answer to that question. Is that 200% of GDP? Is it 250? Is it 300% of GDP? Well, I think um, it's diminishing returns, right? It's, sure, uh, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like... At this point, it just falls off a cliff. It just gets worse, 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 worse. 
Right, but now you know. Look at look at what has has triggered. But by by just going out there, and you mentioned it uh, earlier when we were talking uh, about the Fed pivot, right? Just going out there and the Fed making some statements about how they think they're ending or near the end of their rate hiking cycle. You saw the ten-year yield drop like a stone, right? Showing a massive bid for for Treasuries, particularly at the long end. Right now, you can bid. The government can borrow at rates, uh, you know, in in. <laughs> In, in, compared to where they were just just a few months ago, much lower, right? So why is that bid? Why is that bid there? Why is there a global bid for Treasuries right now? Um, and you can talk about maybe it's a recession, front running recession. People are trying to put on the the safety trade of buying buying bonds. Maybe it's just that they think that you know rates are going to be much lower in the future. The Fed is going to you know have to bring interest rates down, so there's going to be buyers coming in, but. I really question this notion that there's not sufficient structural demand for treasuries, given the fact that you have rates where they're at, inflation where it's at. And if you take those two numbers, you know, 10-year 10-year yields should relatively track nominal GDP. They're actually, in, by some measures, under that right now. So I, I, I really struggle with this notion that there's not sufficient demand for treasuries. I think that, uh, uh, if anything, the last few months has show, shows you there's a, there's a considerable demand for treasuries. And the big the big whales that would provide even more liquidity, the, uh, the insurance companies, the pension funds, they're not even buying right now. And you've got 10-year yields that have fallen, you know, what, 70 bips in, in recent weeks? Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Hannah Storm and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. 
And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk about that. Uh, that's a good point. So uh, I, I kind of made the case I threw out there that there wasn't enough demand, and you're saying that there is enough demand. And I think there's nuance to that, and I think we're both correct, right? It sounds yeah. like... If we look at that, was that failed auction in, in August, the 30-year, right? And it wasn't mm-hmm. failed, obviously, but it had a long tail on it. Sure. And, and if you look at the difference in the auction from January to the auction in August, this was a 30-year, and it's different. It's a longer length of time, and the rate's different, and the market was different back then as well. Correct. But what we saw is actually the international – well, there's you know three categories of bond buyers um, – the demand actually was uh, was the same. The appetite they they bought as many bonds. The problem was the treasury issued way more, mm-hmm. and so there wasn't enough at that point. Now, uh, to your point, so is there enough demand for the supply the treasury is giving? Well, what about if the Fed still tries to roll it off their books? What if the treasury tries to double? Right. So well, at some the, point, at some point, there would be a mismatch. The treasury doesn't really. This is a big misnomer. So. QT is not the opposite of QE. QE, they're going and they're taking a treasury on the bank's balance sheets and they're swapping it for bank reserves, a less liquid, or was liquid, but a a less versatile form of collateral. Okay, QT is not that. QT is effectively, we have a bond, whatever maturity it is, we will let it naturally expire and not replace it. That's, That's a different dynamic, right, Mark? Because what you just said, let's, you know, are we selling this into the marketplace? Are we reintroducing that long duration instrument and actually putting it there so someone in the private market can bid it? And that's not what QT does. QT says, okay, you had a, a seven year piece of paper. We're going to let it naturally mature and then we're not going to reintroduce it in the marketplace. What does the Fed have to do at that point? The, or excuse me, the Treasury. What does the Treasury have to do? The Treasury has to go then and they have to borrow from the marketplace. And what we've learned in recent months and what I think most people naturally know is that how they borrow, the duration they issue is really important because institutions can better and more easily absorb short-term paper than long-term instruments, okay? It is very difficult from a liquidity perspective to buy a 20-year or 30-year piece of paper versus a two-year or a six-month. And and what I think that the the, to your point, I think, in fairness, what, what Secretary Yellen has been doing at Treasury is she's been favoring more short-term paper, which is far easier for the market to absorb, particularly when you can drain reverse repo and have that big pot of money serve yeah. as a, a stimulative effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. But uh, let's just go back to that. So the, the under QT, the Fed has a bond mature. Correct. Which rolls off their books. Mm-hmm. Right which then the treasury has to go to the market to get the money for. Correct. But then, but, but, but it's a difference in, in the maturity, right? So if they had a five-year bond or a seven-year or a 10-year that is maturing, okay, and they have all these maturing r- routinely, right? You right, know so that. So they can take a five-year or 30-year and, and go at one year and send it back out at one year. Or a three-month bill. Or, or three-month or whatever, which to your point earlier, which is uh, the corporations did a pretty good job of locking in long-term debt. Homeowners did a pretty good job of locking in long-term debt. Yellen looks like the worst trader in history. She put, like, when rates were at the lowest point in history, they could have locked it out for 30 years, and here she put it all on the front end. Yeah, but that, but 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 that's a little bit unfair because um, you think about why she's not just stupid in doing that. Why didn't she want to introduce long dated supply into the marketplace? And if you go back at those periods where rates were really low, she's trying to provide liquidity to the marketplace. It would run counter to her efforts, right? So take take for example, when the ten year is at 03 percent, and there's fear in the marketplace after COVID. 
do you really think it would be wise for her to issue a ton of short-term paper at that point when the when there were many people that thought we're going to end up in a depression? Because if you're introducing that supply at that point where the markets are already weak, okay, what are you going to do? You're going to give you're going to put that yield up higher, okay? You're going to move it to close to 1% and it's going to run counter to your efforts at the same time to do QE, to do fiscal stimulus, to try and reinvigorate the economy. So, I think that's a li- just from my perspective, respectfully, I think that's kind of a little bit unfair because they're trying at that point to simulate when they would do the issuance there, it would actually be run counter to their efforts to stimulate. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I see that. I see that. Um, so, so sort of back to the constraints that we have and sort of where we're going, you also mentioned, um, you know, the appetite for these treasuries and how at the 10-year right now it seems very strong. And so what does that mean? Are people expecting a recession or lower rates in the future, kind of a thing like that? Um, I, I covered uh, – Reuters had picked up uh, – Yellen said that she projected the interest on the, on the debt would – be one per would average one percent of GDP for the rest of the decade. <laughs> yeah. And so to do the math on that, how do we get to interest being one percent of GDP? Obviously, there's a bunch of levers in there to play with. Um, I got this from an article from uh, RIA, I, I believe it was. But when you look at the math, so it's basically the interest rate has to get down to zero point eight in order mm-hmm. to have like this 1% of GDP average, right? So sh- that's what she's saying. And so then the market probably goes, well, shoot, if we could lock it in at three, two, three, four, five percent 5%, I mean, it's better than the 0% it's going to average. So maybe that really kicks up the uh, appetite for that. It, it all depends on what is going to happen with growth and inflation, okay? If you're a, a serious bond trader, um, and I have some friends that that's all they do, right? They, they'll tell you that the, the big oddball in this whole cycle is, what happens with inflation? There are, there are some of the inflationistas who have said, we're going to have structurally higher inflation for the rest of the decade. You know, we're going to have it close. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then yields are completely mispriced. You know, you're sitting at, I, I just want to make sure I had the right number. You're sitting at a 10-year of 3.89, okay? And when you're calculating that 3.89, you have to factor in growth and you have to act, f- factor in an inflation kicker, right? Why would you own a piece of paper that does not keep up with the rate of inflation? It doesn't make sense unless you expect growth to collapse and inflation to collapse. So I think what many traders are doing right now, they're expecting disinflation. They've, they've put in this Goldilocks sort of period where you get inflation back down to 2%. And to your point, if that were to occur, then yeah, bonds at 3.8%, bonds at 4%, 10-year uh, at, at 4%, that's a no-brainer. Right. You, if you if you have if you have inflation, you know, the official government statistics, CPI at two percent and you've got a 10 year, then you have a basically the quote unquote risk free rate at four percent. You're getting a two percent, you know, a kicker there. That's that's a no brainer. Now, if you're your side of the trade, you're saying these these 10 years should be closer to five or six percent because inflation is going to pick back up again and there'll be another wave. Yeah, um, I think, you know. And to your point, wave, perfect, perfect, <laughs> right? It's like inflation comes in waves. And so this is not a, nothing that ever does a smooth line. I just think for the rest of the decade, right, we're looking at now, you know, seven year period or whatever, six, six year period, um, you know, with, with sort of the, the globalism, globalization sort of breaking apart, you know, trying to re onshore supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. I think it just leads to inflation. But um, going back. If that's back- true, then short bonds is the trade of the decade. Just, just to clarify for the audience, if, if you're correct, which you may be, I'm not saying you're not, but. Short bonds is the trade of the decade, short, yeah. short treasuries. 
let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the uh, Fed pivot here. It's not technically, well, whatever you consider a pivot. For me, I consider a pivot would be we were raising, now we're lowering. So right now we're like in a pause, Uh, but whatever you want to call it. uh, Certainly a uh, hawkish to dovish pivot. We could call it that, right? Um, maybe I'm, I'm curious your take on that. And, um, is this a political move or is this a data move or is it both? Uh, I think it's both. Um, so, and, and to your point, just about the the terminology, you got to remember the most famous Powell pivot, the one coming out of, uh, December, uh, 2018, early January, 2019, uh, where Powell originally said the balance sheet runoff, it's on autopilot. And then by the middle of next year, after the yield curve inverted, they were they were cutting. Um, he actually quote unquote pivoted before the cut came. 
Okay, the Powell pivot came in Q1 of 2019 after the stock market sold off pretty violently at the end of 2018. It was down 20%. So I think, you know, for their perspective, they love to prime the pump from a communication standpoint. Like we talked about, it's all jawboning, yeah. setting market expectations. And I think that was calculated in what they were doing. They came and, out. And, and, to add, and, to, and to add on to that, Joe, in um, November of 21, the pivot came, we're going to start tightening, but they didn't actually start doing it until 2022. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's exactly right. And what? And when did Bitcoin top? November of 2021. Right. When did I think Nasdaq topped somewhere thereabouts within a month? Yeah, a few yeah. weeks later. Same thing with the S and P at the end of 2021. So it's always about like sort of front running what they're now pivoting to tell you is coming down the line. They don't want to surprise the market. Right. Even just as one final little nugget of this, do you remember even when it was a, a, a blackout period, okay, which is basically when the Fed's not supposed to leak any information, they're not supposed to give you any information in advance of the FOMC meeting, they gave that famous um, sort of leak to Nick Timoros, which really made him a star, right, where they basically said, we're going to do a 75 basis point hike in uh, the summer of 2021, uh, 2022, excuse me. That was unexpected, right? They realized we're behind the curve with respect to inflation. We're going to move up expectations from 25 or 50 basis points to 75, which was really uh, not something you normally see. That's all about setting expectations. And I think that he did that with the last meeting. He took the market by a surprise with how dovish he was coming out. So why is this? Um, I think it's because they're seeing some of the forward indicators show significant disinflation. I think they're seeing some of the early signs of an economic slowdown. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to stick the soft landing by just by getting ahead of the curve, right? Typically, they're behind the curve. They're being reactionary. And again, this goes back to your point, the yeah. new dogma being preemptive, right? They, yeah. Rather than sitting here in the spring when you've got some clear recessionary-like data, they want to say we're easing now because they know there's a lag effect before those uh, that easing comes into the marketplace. And I think the market got its message from the Fed, and that's why I think you've seen repricing along the curve. Yeah. Yeah. That's some of the data points I've been looking at. I mean, the PCE right, potentially is what is maybe they're more important indicator than the PCI or uh, and uh, core PCI. Yeah. Core PCE yeah, is the main yeah, core preferred PCE. gauge. And what we can see now, like the forecast is like they're undershooting their target. Right. Like yeah. uh, they were projecting by the end of next year to get it down to, you know, two, two and a half ish, 2.4. And like we're going to be there like right now. Like and so like we might achieve 2025 goals. Uh, it looks like based off of sort of where they're projecting it, which and is so not good, like, by the way. No, it's not that's good not, at all. No, yeah. it's, it, that, that's that's bad. And, that's recessionary and that, type type readings. Right. Yes. I mean, we agree. We agree on that. And this goes back to what I kind of set up the conversation with uh, was like really being preemptive instead of reactionary because like people would say oh when the fed pivot happens stocks crash well that's correlation not causation right it's like they were already crashing and the fed acted too too late and so to see them doing this now um, seems like it's a data-driven move but then also but then of course why would they do that when inflation is still there and it seems like they would choose inflation over deflation uh, particularly going into this political cycle into a 2024 election cycle. Yeah, there's one other aspect that I should add, okay, which I think is huge. If you remember the stock market, um, the, the S&P and, and NASDAQ were selling off pretty hard near the end of October. Do you recall that? And yeah. almost to the day of when the stock market bottomed after a more than 10% correction, um, you know, peaked in July, in August, sold off down into the end of October. And within a day, uh, as folks have pointed out on, on FinTwit, it was right after you got this update, the quarterly refinancing announcement from Treasury. And what the big sort of news item that many attribute to be a catalyst for this run in risk assets was that 
like we talked about earlier, Janet Yellen was going to issue more short-term paper that's easier to absorb, and she wasn't going to issue as much long-term paper. I think George Gammon, you, uh, your friend, he's talked about this as well. Yeah. Uh, the decision not to put that much supply of longer duration into the market was read by many as being a pro-risk-on rally. Why is that relevant to what, what's happening now? you got to remember that in mid-January, I think it's the 21st, if memory serves, there's going to be another quarterly refinancing announcement. And what we may see at that point is Janet Yellen finally saying, we need to now introduce some more of the duration supply. She doesn't want to run the entire government on short-term paper that you constantly have to roll. She needs to lock in some of it in longer duration. So what many have sort of theorized is that one of the reasons why Powell had to come out and potentially be more dovish at this meeting is because she knows that Janet Yellen is going to come with additional duration supply into the market, and they don't want to sell that paper at you know near 5% or 4.8% tenure. They'd much rather sell that tenure paper at 3.89%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, do you think, I mean, so history tells us that uh, a president in a re-election, an incumbent president in a re-election cycle uh, going into recession, you know, has very little chance of, of, of re-election at this point. Um, so maybe maybe two two part question here for you. One, um, you know, the Fed being this independent agency, do you believe that it looks like? I mean, I can give you a bunch of data points. I don't necessarily agree with that. It looks like there's taps on the shoulder. The Fed wants to control the dollar, but if the government goes bankrupt, what good is the what good is the dollar sort of thing? So anyway, one, do you think they're being sort of coerced or working with the government? Let's just say, um, and then two, if that's true then do you think if the Biden administration wants to win, they would do pretty much anything they could, whatever they're possible, to make sure we don't go into a recession this year? So I, I'll start from the, the, the spirit of the first part of the question, which I think the Fed is inherently political at this point. Okay. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think their actions have shown that, uh, particularly you know, ever since really the, the dual mandate, I think, I think it's very difficult to have the dual mandate where you have stable prices and the labor market, when in many cases they can run against each other. And what I think you've seen a little bit of this with the hiking cycle where, you know, Powell has said the labor market's out of balance. That's the phrase he used. What he's really saying in code is that there needs to be more unemployed people because there's too much demand uh, uh, for labor and that uh, that causes uh, sort of increased uh, inflationary dynamics. Uh, so that, so I, I do think you have an inconsistency and also the, this, this sort of natural thing that, you know, we are, have to be married at the hip with Treasury because there's so much of the fiscal dominance in play that we have to sort of at least uh, implicitly backstop the demand for treasuries where necessary, okay, if, if there yeah. is illiquidity or certain issues. Um, the bigger issue, though, I think is that, you know, what, what, what does it mean in, a, in, a, in an election year? And I think what a lot of folks are missing, and I think I'll credit people like Lynn Alden, who talks about this quite a bit, is, you know, she, she uses and I think has referred to this term of fiscal dominance and the, the ability of treasury really to dwarf what the Fed is doing. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. When you're running wartime deficits effectively, do you really believe, Mark, that hiking 25 bips or 50 bips or cutting 50 bips are gonna, is going to impact the economy with the amount of spending that's coming into the marketplace? And that's what puts real 
real money into people's hands. Um, right. You know, the Fed had, they were well documented for, for years after the GFC saying, we don't understand why the QE we're doing is not triggering inflation. We don't understand it. We don't see the, the CPI ticking up. And I think the, the same is true of the interest rate policies. When they're at zero, you still had relatively uh, muted CPI and PCE. I think what they found out after COVID, or during COVID rather, was that if you really want to get the economy running, if you really want to induce consumers to spend, just give them cash. And the yeah, only entity fiscal. that can give give them direct cash is the treasury, right? Yeah. So what, what I expect is that like, you know, my, my view is that treasury continues to dominate and overshadow what the Fed is doing. And I think that will continue. And the Fed is sort of the backstop behind it. They're kind of the janitor that has to come in and clean up the mess that the fiscal spending is doing. And, and to, to uh, you know, to their credit, I think they were trying, um, but ultimately Janet Yellen's spend, spending, treasury spending is just dwarfing anything they're doing. And one final thing is you got to remember that Janet will by uh, Janet Yellen by the, by Q one she will have successfully rebuilt like eighty percent of the TGA, and to your point about an election year, that's a huge pot of money. It's it's hundreds of billions of dollars she will have to provide liquidity to the marketplace, and she doesn't care what Powell does. Powell can raise, he can keep him steady, he can lower him. She's got hundreds of billions of dollars she can use to provide liquidity in conjunction with the executive branch where necessary, without any yeah. you know effect on monetary policy. Yeah, uh, very well broken down. And I agree with all of that. Um, you know, to, to your point, Lynn Alden, I had her on just recently, we talked about that. And, and I agree with that. And you look at uh, a lot of factors, obviously, just the government spending, but even how that's being broken down and look at the amount of labor for labor force participation just by government jobs, right? Uh, yes. Like they're driving over half of the economy, right? Uh, plus all the spending they're doing and all these other things, and even the, the job owning. And so, the Fed is trying to crush demand by making everybody broke, but the people they're making broke is a small percentage of the market. The, the, the Fed is just pumping the other half, so I agree with that. So then, based off of that, let's put our prediction hat, hat on. Um, let's just go to November when the election is. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that they're able, you know, again, I think we both agree that they'll probably do whatever they can. Uh, whether they can or not is a different story. Uh, and so I guess the question is, do you think they'll be able to keep this thing going through November? And are we up or down by then? Yeah, I mean, so I think the, the success in that, the, the success in their efforts to keep the, 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 the plates all spinning is going to be mostly driven by what happens in the labor market. Because I think you can make a case here uh, based on some of the indicators that unemployment may begin to rise in Q1, Q2 of next year. If it rises gradually and slowly, I think their chances of success in sort of keeping the plate spinning till the election uh, is, is higher. Um, but you got to remember, economic, uh, economic systems are dynamic, right? So they don't respond. Everybody thinks it's just a linear sort of slow, gradual rise. When in reality, what we've seen in prior recessions is you generally have the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. You have sort of the tipping event, which can cause a significant spike in unemployment. And if you see a significant spike in unemployment, that's going to be very difficult for them to deal with. And in addition to that, while you will have liquidity from the Treasury because of the rebuilt TGA, you're not going to have any stimulus packages come through in Congress. There's no reason for the opposition party to bless a stimulus package when they're trying to take back the White House. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic. But I think it all comes back to the labor market. You know, uh, even by the Fed's own estimates, they expected unemployment rate, the unemployment rate to be higher by the end of 2023. They didn't come close to the target. Uh, that is telling me that, you know, there is a structural shortage in the labor market. And without 
you know, a recession without a rise in unemployment is sort of meaningless, right? What does yeah. that What does that really mean? Like, you know, the old adage that you know, a, a, a recession's when your neighbor loses your job, a depression's when you lose your job. There's a lot of truth to that, right? What yeah. we really care about in a recession is how does labor respond? Um, we've had plenty of periods post GFC where the growth rate, the actual statistical growth rate, real GDP, has been very muted, right? It's been in the you know one percent, one point two percent before the the you know, before the uh, 2000s, they used to say that was pre-recessionary growth. Now it's sort of become the norm for us to expect 1% growth, 2% growth. So, so I, I personally, if you had a gun to my head, I think it's far more likely than not, they can keep it sort of stable. But if you got some uh, unexpected event that tips and breaks the camel's back for, for the labor market, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, and I would definitely agree with you on the labor market. So going back to political or data, it's both. Uh, the data being the, seeing the PCE slow down ahead of schedule, which is dangerous, but also I, I agree it's the unemployment they're seeing. And we talk about like risk assets, like they take the uh, stairs up and the elevator down, right? And so does right. labor markets as well. And mm -hmm. the problem with labor markets is it, once this degrowth starts happening, um, it could take years to recover. And so it's like they really want to get in front of this. And that goes back to kind of the point I made from the beginning, which is they're much more preemptively working today. Um, so I would agree that that labor market um, is the thing they're probably most concerned about. Well, I don't know about most concerned about, but one of the most concerning things for them, I would agree with you on that. The thing that I would just go back to is great. So all these people lose their jobs. Businesses shut down. Cool. Let's just send out STEMI checks. Like, well, you know what I mean? It's just like, a, yeah, but there's, like, there's a problem with that because, it, you know, it's an election year, right? So you have a reason, a political reason why folks would block that effort. You know, if you're if you're a member of the GOP and you were attempting to try and uh, retake the White House, as I said, why would you vote for anything in the form of a stimulus check? Why wouldn't you, you want if, the pain if, if, to get worse? Unless unless you don't see all the rhinos on the Republican side and don't see a uniparty system. <laughs> that's more of a political conversation. Uh, let's, 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 let's jump gears. I mean, unless you want to add something to that. No, no, that's uh, great. That's let, great. Let's jump gears. I want to get into uh, more political things, but uh, from a different standpoint. And this is more about like um, the Bitcoin ETF. Yes. And um, sort of Janet, I'm uh, not Janet, uh, Elizabeth Warren's um, sort of war path against Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and just tech in general, really. I see this sort of like Elizabeth Warren, Gary Gensler sort of camp, Biden camp, really against tech, it just seems like, specifically crypto and Bitcoin. Um, so we have on one hand, we have like Wall Street jumping in with this ETF. On the other hand, the government's like really coming heavy handed. Let's start with the ETF side. So um, at this point, I mean, shoot, man, it looks like any day we could see a handful of ETFs get approved. Maybe by the time this recording even shows up, we don't know. January um, 8th. You'll, we, know it's, we know it's certainly not going to be before the 5th. We know. Okay, there we go. We, the, the reason why are you, say, are you, you saying that's are you saying that's the soonest or you think that's that's what you're calling as the date? Uh, I think it's most likely to happen on the eighth, but we know it's not going to happen before the fifth, and there's a real reason for that because what they did is they retooled some of the comment periods for the ETFs. The SEC said that some of the comment periods will extend through January fifth, which is a Friday, um, and that's I think it's the Franklin one, a couple others. And the reason why it would be very unlikely, I mean, it's, it's possible, I, I assume that you could, you, could, you could have approval, but it's very unlikely for them to issue in the Federal Register that people can comment on these ETFs and issue feedback and then suddenly approve it right before then. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. They, they typically allow the comment period to expire, and, and the, the, the latest comment period is, is January 5th. So my bet is the following week after the 5th. 
Okay. Interesting. Um, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I don't, I don't disagree. It looks like just the last couple of days, the amount of chatter happening and not just the chatter. Uh, the next thing I want to bring up is not, it's not just the chatter. It's like the increase of meetings happening between these ETF applicants and the SEC, mm-hmm. but more specifically the changes that they've had to start making to these applications. So Which is genius for them, right? I mean, have you broken down these on other podcasts? The changes? No. No. Okay. Go ahead. Let's so, do it. So, so give me, give me uh, your attorney hat. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really actually, um, it, I, I view it basically. And, and again, uh, I'm speaking for only myself and no client or my firm, but I'll just tell you, I view it as basically, uh, an act of retaliation against uh, grayscale. And I'll explain why, because they are insisting on this issue of the cash creates for the shares, basically for the creation purposes of shares they want, um, uh, the entities, the ETFs, they really had a sort of their foot down on this. And that's what a lot of the meetings have been about. They want the ETFs to go buy Bitcoin with cash, as opposed to creating shares through people tendering over Bitcoin to the entity. Uh, the in-kind creation is what it's called. And the reason why that's really significant is that all the other ETF vehicles out there, other than Grayscale, they are in many respects, although they may want to have a better source of Bitcoin to just letting in kind, it's not as consequential for them because they can just go source the Bitcoin, buy it with cash, and they use that to fill up their, their ETF structures. Now, Grayscale is a different story, right? As you know, Mark. But before we jump to the Grayscale, let me just ask you to clarify this for me. So um, yeah. they went to being cash settled as opposed to physically settled. No, so no, not, you're- not settled. Creation of the shares. So, so, so this the- means that instead of I'm going to give them cash and they're going to mm-hmm. take that cash and they're going to go buy Bitcoin. Correct. Exactly. They, right. They're actually going to go physically buy it and hold yes. it. Yeah. And then if absolutely. I want to cash out, they'll sell the Bitcoin in the market and give me my cash back. Correct. So, so the way to think about it is this, okay, you, you have an original structure of the trust, right? And the trust just has shares. Just think of it like any company. Okay. You have shares of the company. How do you create those shares? How do you determine if, if we're going to issue shares, how are you going to actually create them? And the, re- the reality is that th- what Grayscale used to do in, is they used to let people send over their Bitcoin and they would give them locked up shares. Do you remember that? That's how the premium was extracted for a long yeah. time. So that was an in-kind contribution. They basically said, here's my Bitcoin. You take that. You give me shares. And they were extracting premium. Now, what they're trying to get people to do is they say, you can issue as many shares as you want. You can create as many shares as you want. But you have to create those shares with cash. It's called a cash create. Whereas, you know, say I have a, a bunch of Bitcoin, I've got 50 Bitcoin and I want to go, you know, buy uh, an equivalent amount of shares. I can't tender to BlackRock my Bitcoin and get the shares. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But why does so that why matter? Is, why oh, is that ahead. significant? Why does that yeah. matter? Um, because with Grayscale, okay, Grayscale already has a ton of Bitcoin. Okay. And if they're going to insist on the conversion has to be a cash creation of shares. If they're going to uplist their ETF, or basically transform the GBTC to an ETF, what they're effectively going to have to do is they're going to have to then get cash from people and they can't convert this big honeypot of Bitcoin that they have to the ETF structure. There's no way to do that without you know, basically selling the Bitcoin in the open market, which they have to realize a tax loss on, which is big deal, right? Like if you're selling Bitcoin, you acquired at 15,000, which Grayscale did, there are tax consequences or potential tax consequences that makes it structurally a lot harder for Grayscale to convert than a new entity, like all these new ones that have filed, where all they need is cash. They can just go out into the marketplace, buy the Bitcoin, issue the shares. Boom, it's done. Mm. 
So a lot of this move you're thinking is sort of by push to push grayscale out of the running because well, they're probably going to bring in a several at one time to in sort of maybe whatever in the air of fairness or whatever, but this gives them a way to sort of put that out and maybe, maybe the black rocks, et cetera, don't like this maybe unfair advantage that, that grayscale has by already having all these customers and, and shares or not shares, but Bitcoin. I don't think it's, it's driven. This is just my supposition here. I don't think it's driven by what, what BlackRock or the other participants want. I think it's more just the SEC is very frustrated with Grayscale. Um, they lost in court against Grayscale, right? Yeah. And and if they can kind of, uh, you know, put in place a structural um, barrier that doesn't prevent them from converting, but it makes it very painful for them to convert, why not? I mean, I think that's their rationale. I think that's why it seems kind of silly to focus so much on this, we don't want in-kind share creation. Uh, I don't think it really makes a whole lot of sense, to be honest. But if they can twist the knife a little bit and cause a little pain, I think that's their rationale. And, uh, you know, from from the perspective of, of Grayscale, right, it's a big deal. Like having all this Bitcoin, now they got to figure out how to how to convert it. Um, it's not going to be as simple as just a new market participant just spinning up an ETF and just saying, OK, I've got the cash. I'll create the shares. Uh, Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
about a month ago, I was in Dallas or Fort Worth for the Texas Blockchain Association, and I sat at dinner with about 10 people that were all very, very connected. I don't want to drop their names here, but um, let's just say some ETF people, some regulatory people, uh, some lawmakers. Uh, it was a pretty good <laughs> table of who's who there. We got into these conversations, and uh, again, we have some ETF people there at the table, and they were explaining to me that, like the Black Rocks, et cetera, a lot of people are expecting this you know, massive bump, but they're trying to front run it. As soon as these ETFs get approved, the price is going to go up because they're all going to go buy this massive amount of Bitcoin. Um, but they're like, that's not how it works. Like They've already been building these seed accounts or these buffer accounts. These grayscale, or not grayscales, but the Black Rocks, et cetera, they can't be buying and selling in the market every day. They, they can't move the market. So they have these buffer accounts they've already established, and they'll buy and sell from their buffer accounts, these seed accounts, and then these seed accounts will be managing sort of the market. Um, so they've already been buying all year, mm -hmm. and the, the ETF will have to go buy at market price from that vehicle. Um, so I don't know if you know anything about that, if you yeah, think no. that's true or not. And, and if so, then it would seem like then Grayscale could just do something similar. They set up a Grayscale ETF that then just buys the Bitcoin from the trust. They they could do that as long as they're willing to pay the taxes, right? right. And that impacts the value of the shares. So uh, it, it's conceivable that if they were to do what you're talking about, they're going to realize tax events, and that could continue to contribute to a sh the shares of the trust trading at a discount to the Bitcoin they hold. Right. Which that makes sense. you know it, that's the that's the real problem. Again, this would not prevent in any way Grayscale from converting. It just makes it a little bit more painful yeah. and a little bit more onerous. They should have done it last year when it was at fifteen thousand. <laughs> now, now, yeah. now, now, now doing it now, they're kind of stuck. Um, okay, so that, I, I like that you broke that down for me. I appreciate that because I was thinking it was more cash settled, and so it wasn't really they're buying the Bitcoin. It wasn't really going to affect the supply demand metrics of nope. Bitcoin. But you're not saying that. It's just more about the redemption, the addition, and the subtraction of the cash. It'll it'll absolutely be spot Bitcoin. They're buying. Nothing's going to be you know cash settled. It's all about how do you create the shares. Yeah. Now you were saying that you maybe don't think this is that big of a catalyst. I think you made a, a point. Is that is that accurate? Uh, the ETF, and when I say a catalyst, the ETFs being approved is not going to be that big of a catalyst for the price of Bitcoin. I think it's already been a catalyst. Um, okay. I think uh, you know the notion that people. Uh, savvy market participants don't read the tea leaves and they're going to wait until day one to buy the spot Bitcoin ETF. I'm sure it will lead to flows and I think it will contribute, um, you know, in, in a positive way. I think that it's already sort of triggered, triggered a bull market here. And I think you've seen a lot of it. Um, you know, the estimates are all over the place. Uh, there were some folks at Bloomberg that I was talking with that, you know, they estimate in the first year, it could be 10 billion. I know that there are other people on Twitter that are, are you know, wildly bullish. They think it's going to lead to hundreds of billions of dollars in inflow. We don't know, right? Um, but as you know from markets, right, expectations are everything. So if if the expectations are like ten billion and you end up getting ten billion, to me, I think that's in large part, not totally, but in large part, that's been priced in. Now, if if the expectations are ten billion and you get a hundred billion in inflows in the first year, that's massive, right? That'll that'll be a huge catalyst. But you know, markets are interesting in this way that you know market participants don't wait until the actual event. To position themselves, and I would expect that the reason we're sitting at you know forty four thousand or whatever it is as as of today forty three thousand is because people have already read the tea leaves and realized that this is sort of priced in. That's not a reason, by the way, to be bearish and think that we're going to have some crash or you know cascade down. But I would not be surprised if you know post ETF we're sitting in the forties or fifty thousand, and then we continue upward trend. You know, maybe for the next six months to a year. But I don't. I guess when I'm making that comment. 
I don't, Mark, believe that you're going to have a – they talk about this God candle, right, where the day the yeah. ETF launches, yeah, we're yeah. going to go up $20,000 or $30,000. I don't believe that. Um, I could be wrong. I don't have a crystal ball, but that's just my gut. I don't believe that either. That's not my gut either. And and partly because, like I said, I don't think ETFs are going to go out and buy all the Bitcoin. They already have the Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. just right off the bat, now what it would do is – Potentially, what I think the ETF does over a longer period of time is, you know, in a in in new technology of this diffusion of innovation, it's called. And so you have the the innovators, the true believers, then you have the, the chasm, and then the early majority. Right. And the ETF making it legitimate helps cross the chasm. So then you get the early majority to start coming in, and they'll buy on the exchanges in the open market. And so there's a catalyst there. I think this could be a buy the rumor, sell the news event. I put out a video maybe two weeks ago saying, "Hey, warning! Just be careful. If it does dip, don't you don't sell. Like." Don't get shaken out. It might, you know, we might see this short-term sell-off, but I think it is going to be a long-term catalyst. 72% of financial advisors said if an ETF got approved, they would recommend buying Bitcoin and crypto for your assets or yes. for your portfolio. So, like, oh, you know, it doesn't happen automatically. The other thing is I think, you know, again, maybe not the first year, but, you know, two years, three years down the road, you mentioned earlier these passive index funds. You know, the majority of people have their money in 401ks and mutual funds, and they don't even manage that at all. And so right. you're going to have these allocation managers, portfolio managers allocating to Bitcoin that people don't even know. And so, but this happens over years, right? Years, years, years. Um, I saw you say something else that I thought was pretty interesting. It's the only second time I've ever heard it. Uh, I've said it. Uh, I talk about like if we, if, if I wanted to price Bitcoin's future valuation, sort of like a venture capitalist, I'd look at the markets that it's disrupting, how big those markets are and what percentage we could calculate or we could capture from those. And so I look at just store of value assets alone. And so, you know, obviously gold store of value, um, equities, sure, you know, bonds, of course, real estate. But one I always threw out was offshore bank accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, 30 to $40 trillion sitting in offshore bank accounts. We don't know exactly. Uh, we see that those offshore bank accounts are not like they used to be. Uh, we saw these Russian oligarchs getting their bank accounts seized, etc. A lot of that privacy has gone away. So uh, Bitcoin is, is certainly a better version of gold for, for, for store value. It's certainly a better Swiss bank account in your pocket. And I saw you throw out something about um, you think that could be a really big catalyst. Uh, yeah. Bitcoin. Am I right? So um, you go back to how the euro dollar system uh, was developed and euro dollar system post World War Two and even to some extent before that, you had a huge influx of dollars into uh, commercial banks and some non banks abroad. And they began to create dollar based deposits from that. And what, what I, the reason the analogy I'm bringing this uh, bringing this out, you know, sort of comparing to Bitcoin is that um, as you alluded to earlier, right, if the, the inflationistas are correct and you have higher structural inflation, you've got higher debts, you've got higher cost of capital and bonds trending higher, there will be increasingly offshore entities who are looking for something they can store uh, that is not an equity, right, because equities can be printed at will by the company if they want to issue new shares. They're going to be looking for something that is not a sovereign bond. Um, that because those can also be printed at will, you know, by by new issuers or new entities, they're going to be looking at something that you know, to the example that's similar to gold that they can have as a hedge in their balance sheets and they can use as reserves. And I think and this without is the, counterparty risk, because yeah. we saw what happened with Russia. Correct, correct. So I, I think this is early days, right? Where nobody's talking about it, which to me is that's where you got to be. You got to be what nobody's talking about. Everybody knows about nation state adoption, ETFs, these sorts of things. But what I think the market discounts is that savvy financial firms, now that you have a US based ETF, that you have people 
putting money in to establish a floor. Okay, that's the big thing. When, when you're building reserves, you want a floor upon which the price is not going to drop and go to zero, right? And I think the establishment of the ETF provides that floor in many respects. And that will be a signal, I think, to international participants that, yes, there's enough for putting exposure on commercial bank balance sheets and, to your point, to offshore accounts in, in different areas. That will be a huge pot of money that will, you know, even tiny amounts of that money flowing into Bitcoin is going to make the price absolutely rip. Um, so that's a big, big deal in my mind. And I, I think it's, I think it's more impactful than like even the legal tender stuff. And the that's all fun, right? Because it's retail. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, uh, what's the old quote? Like, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money's at. Like, yeah. banks are where the money's at, right? That's where you want to go if you're trying to really penetrate, you know, and reach critical adoption. And you know, to get Bitcoin from forty thousand dollars to two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars. I don't believe that will be primarily driven by retail. I think it's going to be driven by bigger institutions with balance sheet capacity uh, to look that are looking for an alternative to the bond market. Yeah, um, there was a paper I read uh, a few months ago by I think it goes by on Twitter, Deep Throat IPO. I think is his name, and he basically broke down a lot of these offshore bank accounts. To your point. Um, the three biggest bank accounts being Chinese-owned bank accounts. And he was basically talking how um, they could collapse the whole U.S. banking system if they wanted just by transferring money from one account to the next. Like, they have yes. trillions of dollars in these accounts. And J.P. Morgan, it's been months since I read the report. Well, it's been at least five because I haven't been on Twitter that long. Um, but he talked about how, you know, J.P. Morgan being the biggest bank uh, in the U.S. had about $800 billion of liquidity. And they could just, I'll just withdraw $800 billion from J.P. Morgan and move it to bank two over here, like push of a button, but boom, they go insolvent. And they talked about that as a threat. But going back to kind of the point you're making, and and, and we're talking about offshore banking. Um, I, I like I like that that concept of sort of this ETF putting a floor there. You know, what we saw like in the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers is, you know, all these rich oligarchs and whatever around the world have all this money also. So not just the banks, but you know, the rich people uh, have all this money in these offshore bank accounts to, to the point I was making earlier, we saw the Russian oligarchs getting their money seized. When you set up these, you know, intricate offshore webs of, uh, of uh, you know, holding assets this way, you typically use um, fiduciaries to sort of set this up and, and, um, and so forth. And so all you have to do is get a few of them to go shoot. Uh, you know, we can put your money in this Swiss bank counter. We found out the U.S. is actually one of the biggest uh, states, uh, nations for this as well. Um, but, hey, it could get seized. Why don't you take 5% or 10% and put it in Bitcoin over here? And so, I mean, that could pick up two, three, four trillion dollars like very quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. So. I I mean, so the way to think about this stuff, I think, is, it, and I'll just full disclosure, I think it's very difficult to even wrap your head around it. But like, you know, everybody's focus is on the size of M2, right? You see on Fintwit all these charts about M2, which is flawed metric in, in its own right. But, but you know, there are estimates, estimates, right, of the euro dollar system that it dwarfs the size of M2. I read an estimate right. one time, they think it's five or six times M2 in the United States. And people are like, how is that possible? How could there be more dollar-based liabilities? And it's really because of fractional reserve banking, right? If you have some dollars in your account and if offshore banking, you can create deposits for people and you can create lines of credit, you're, you can effectively print money. And then all that really matters is what is the reserves behind it. And if you have sort of a cascade, to your point, like you can, you can create a global dollar shortage. You can create huge problems for the Federal Reserve where they have to open those swap lines and other things to provide liquidity that you were talking about earlier. Why is that relevant for Bitcoin? Well, 
if these entities in large amount can basically print money offshore and for them it's very low cost to put you know small amounts of their balance sheet into bitcoin um, number one, I think that's going to be a huge rip in the price, more so than even, I think, central banks or governments holding Bitcoin. And number two, I think what it would do is it would effectively be a signaling mechanism where, you know, the banks, the actual liquidity providers for the market are saying, we think this is good, reliable collateral. And so again, back to, you know, the perception of reality we talked about earlier, that is huge. If the biggest commercial banks abroad are saying this is a good enough collateral that can compete and be on par with, with, with treasuries, you know, the collateral, the reserve asset of the world, the the, the psychological, uh, you know, stair step there is going to be massive, right? It's a, it's a huge jump for people to get to that point and realize this is what this asset was intended for. It's not meant, I, you know, I, I believe for at least the foreseeable future, Bitcoin is not meant for regular everyday transactions. I think it is a reserve asset that can be used in, in coordination of the larger system. Yeah. I, I know we're running long on time. I have one more topic I want to jump into that sort of dovetails into this. Um, I do want to say that I think um, I think Bitcoin can be a reserve asset and an MOE, medium exchange yeah. at the same time. It's like the first. It's it's a new technology that allows us to have instant vol or have um, unlimited volatility or not volatility. Um, velocity, unlimited velocity uh, without having to add debt on top of it, right? So it could be both. Um, obviously working on layer two, layer three, layer four, there's a whole lot of talks about, you know, block space being uh, scarce, et cetera. So transactions. It's also an evolution, up. right? It, it's it, an evolution. It, 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 exactly. It's an evolution. Yeah. Right. Um, so moving into the last topic I want to talk about. So now we have, you know, this seemingly Wall Street, you know, finance jumping into Bitcoin um, with the ETFs we just talked about, potentially even commercial banks globally getting into Bitcoin, as we talked about. Um, on the other side of that, we have sort of this war path of regulations potentially coming down the pipe against Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. Elizabeth Warren, um, luckily, she has a horrible track record of getting any bills through. Uh, I don't I think she's like 300 to zero or something like that, 300 to one. So hopefully that, that sticks. But um, she's, she's trying to pass a bill that's so restrictive, it doesn't make any sense. And you would go, well, she's whatever, over 70 years old, she doesn't understand it. That's why she's trying to put a bill through here. But Or maybe it's that because it's so restrictive, it sort of makes it impossible to comply it's with. It's the latter. It's the latter, for right. sure. Right. Exactly, right. So, I mean, basically, it could make, potentially, if this bill goes through, it could make doing any Bitcoin trans or, or crypto transactions illegal, I guess, mm -hmm. potentially. Um, and it seems like maybe there's an attack vector specifically coming down against self-custody. And so it seems like almost coincidental that let's open up the ETF so everyone can still own Bitcoin, but then we'll put a law in place that no one can custody Bitcoin. So now you have to buy it all through BlackRock, et cetera. Um, curious your take on that. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. I was on Preston's podcast, uh, Preston Pish's podcast with American Hoddle. And, you know, I have said for a while now, that I think every person involved in the space should have in their mental model, Mark, that you know, you're going to get overbroad, draconian uh, legislation passed, not only by the feds, by the federal government, but you will get passed at some point, uh, whether it's Warren's bill or something else, by states and other localities. Um, and you just have to be prepared for that. It does not mean that you know, Bitcoin is dead or it's going to cripple the market. You, we, we all know that Bitcoin is designed purposely to, to try to not be affected by some of these things. But that doesn't mean that there won't be these sorts of overbroad, vague pieces of legislation that are passed. And what I fully expect, and I've told clients this, is that they will at some point, again, whether it's Warren's bill or others, they will pass these bills and there will be litigation over them. 
And I, you know, from my perspective, I, I work as a litigator. In your perspective, like, you see job security. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many times that a, a, a regulation or a law or something has come down that doesn't make sense. And the fortunate uh, thing about our system, Mark, is that you can go forward to a judge, hopefully that will look at it with open eyes and say, you know what, this captures a lot of inter- innocent activity. It's really not appropriate and they, they will strike it down. Um, I'll give you a perfect example, and, and it's at the risk of bringing up a controversial subject, but you gotta remember that during COVID, um, people were talking about a national emergency and how it was uh, you know, life and death if they didn't put in place mask mandates. And over time, those decrees, a lot of those mask mandates went before the courts, and many of the courts struck them down, saying yeah. they were overreaching and overbroad. Okay, that's how the system is designed to work. I don't care if you're the SEC. I don't care if you're Congress passing a law. We live in a system of checks and balances. And when you go before and exercise your rights between a, hopefully a neutral judge that will look at the issue on its face, he or she will decide, is this appropriate or does this exceed the authority that is granted to Congress? And to me, when you're, when you're basically trying to prevent people from storing p- words in a, in, a, in a USB <laughs> stick... That yeah, is or in their head or their head yeah. self custody ban. If you try to pull that kind of nonsense, I expect them to lose and lose miserably in the court system. So, but but that doesn't mean they can't pass it. Now, this particular bill, you know, I don't think it passes the House. I wouldn't be overly concerned about it, you know, in the short run. But I don't think it's just a mistake that she just doesn't understand the technology. She knows exactly what she's doing. She has aides that are looking at these things and they're trying to say, how do we twist the knife as much as possible? And it is the next step in a sequence that they have taken in this, you know, aptly coined Operation Choke Point 2.0, where they are trying to make it more difficult to buy, purchase custody exchanges. You got to remember, custody Bitcoin, you got to remember that right now it is the official policy of the SEC as set forth in multiple complaints against Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken, that Coinbase is not a registered exchange. They're not a registered broker-dealer. They can't even function as a clearinghouse. That is set forth in papers pending in the court. So explain to me how if that's their position that you know they're not trying to basically shut down the entire crypto industry in the United States. You have the major exchanges the SEC is saying you can't operate. But then if that's the case, then why did they make all these ETFs use Coinbase as their custody? It's a great question. I mean, I think I think what it stems to is that they got spanked in the in the court uh, in the grayscale case. They basically waved the white flag because the court said you're discriminating between the futures product and the spot product. And, you know, we don't they, you don't have a real good basis for denying it. So what, what can they do? They can do something like, say, we want cash creates, so we're not going to allow Grayscale to get the first mover advantage. They can say we want it all custodied. We can say you want disclosures that, you know, the underlying uh, holders like Coinbase and others, they, they, there may be questions as to pose their, um, uh, their regulatory status. And that's all they can do. The SEC, the SEC has limited jurisdiction. People don't, don't really appreciate this. They can only deny ETFs under specific bases. Their basis for denying it uh, for years has been that we don't know if there's sufficient surveillance sharing agreements to monitor the activity in the spot market. We don't know if it's wash trading or it's manipulated or spoofing, et cetera. Um, so that argument failed. They lost on that argument, and they can do two things. They could double down or just let it go through, and I think they waved the white flag and said, we're going to fight on other fronts. This is not the battle we want to uh, you know, uh, put everything on. We'll let it through. We'll fight on the exchange front in litigation. 
they couldn't say that you don't have a uh, registered exchange or registered custody um, solution. So you can't pass this when you don't have a registered solution. They absolutely could. Um, but I think the argument they would end up then is they'd be back in court. Because uh, it seems like if they say, uh, fine, we'll approve you. Yes, you can use Coinbase. Doesn't that sort of like give Coinbase the legitimacy they need to now? Hey, well, you approved us to be their custody. As bizarre as it is, it does not in the okay. eyes of the SEC. To give you an example, the SEC... But, but what about the eyes of the court? Like precedents uh, or something like that? Yeah, well, I mean, keep, keep in mind, Mark, the SEC allowed Coinbase to IPO as an entity. They allowed them to, to come to market as a publicly traded company, and now they're in litigation saying, you don't have the right to conduct your primary business function. How does that make any sense at all? That you can come to the market, and, and what they will tell you is they'll tell you they're different divisions. They're different uh, statutory mandates. We can't uh, question someone's underlying business. We can't tell you it's good. The enforcement division can come in and stop certain activities like the unregistered sale of securities. But you know, it's that's how weird the government is in some respects. Like there's limited power in different uh, spheres. Mm. Man, there's so much I'd like to dig into there, but we're running long on time. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it's just man, there's so many so many questions I have there around that part. But uh, I know we're running long on time, so we won't keep digging down those rabbit holes. But um, to your point, um, I guess sort of to frame this up or, or kind of put a pin in this, um, Elizabeth Warren's team <laughs> knows what they're doing. Yes, um, it's sort of shifting the public narrative, if you will. Um, and uh, watch out for maybe not this one, but bits and pieces of it coming back over and over and over again in the future. The one one thing I'll add, you you brought up a point which is true that she has a pretty terrible track record, right, for passing legislation. The one word of caution I will tell you is that this bill has a ton of really important co-sponsors. So you know most of the bills she's pro pro proposing. They're filed with uh, uh, the, the Senate, and they never see the light of day. They're never debated. They get no, very little or, or no co-sponsors. This has very prominent individuals, heads of uh, certain committees that are significant, signing on with it. So that tells me that this is, pro and I tweeted this out, I, I think of all the bills that have been passed, um, or excuse me, presented, uh, that have been proposed, I think this probably has the best chance of passing the Senate. So she's like 300 and 0, and maybe this will be her first win before she hopefully leaves office. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe. But but not the House. I mean, the House, I don't think this bill goes anywhere in the House. Yeah, yeah. All right, Joe. Uh, man, we're going to wrap it up with that. What, what a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, for anybody who wants a very market savvy and Bitcoin crypto attorney, check out Joe. Joe, shout out your uh, law firm and your contact information for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. If you Google my name, Joe Carlosar, you'll see uh, all my contact info at Amundsen Davis, again, based out of Chicago. If you have any litigated dispute or regulatory issue in the crypto space, um, I'm happy to help or talk with you about it. Um, just reach out individuals to Individuals or just businesses? Both. Both. Okay. I represent individuals. Um, you know, unfortunately, the smaller stuff I can't really handle, uh, you know, the, the, but if there are significant losses, significant disputes, fraud actions, breach of fiduciary duty actions, that's my bread and butter. Um, and if you want some macro musings and some legal musings, uh, I'm at Joe Carlosari on Twitter. Um, uh, feel free to follow me and reach out to me there. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Mark. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.